My name's Derek, I'm the pastor, and uh, a lot of people think I'm in the band, but I'm actually the pastor. And um, speaking of the band, really good today. I was sitting over there really distracted because I can see Jeff's fingers on the keys. And like, I'm not even worshiping, I'm just like watching his hands do the thing. So, good job, Jeff. So. <laughs> no one ever comes up to me and goes, man, I just like watching you read those notes. That's really, <laughs> so cool how you do that, but. Um, hey, so we're in the final week of this series through the story of the Good Samaritan. I thought I could get five Sundays out of it, but lo and behold, like, I can't, I can't. But uh, four is going to be it, so we're going to do that today. And for the last four weeks, we've been listening to that text every, every, uh, every week before I get up to teach. And the one that Hadley just read, the one that you're listening to. And that text, as you know, holds one of the most famous stories that Jesus ever told. And it's the story of uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And that... Uh, story, again, that you just heard for the fourth Sunday in a row now, was not told in isolation. Jesus didn't, it wasn't like a story he was working on, you know, some new material, and he dropped it on the disciples in some weird, you know, off-site place. It wasn't told in isolation, but it was, it was a piece of a larger conversation, this exchange between Jesus and what Luke tells us is an expert in the law, and what that means is he's not a policeman or a lawyer in the sense that we might think, but he's an expert in Israel's law. He's an expert in the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Torah. He knows it. He knows it probably by heart, and he's an expert in it. So if you want to debate Old Testament law with this guy, he's good at it. He knows the law of Moses perfectly, expertly. And the story of the Good Samaritan uh, came by way of one of the questions that came from this expert in the law to Jesus, and, and, it, and this is how Luke records it. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and we'll all, we'll all ask this question together, who is my neighbor? Now, there's always a reason that each of us asks questions, right? And it's the question beneath the question that causes us to ask the question. There's always something that is driving us to ask questions about certain things. And Jesus, listening to this lawyer, he understands what the question beneath the real question is. And he's saying, who is my neighbor? But Jesus understands, as any like really good counselor would know as you're talking to them, he understands that what you're saying isn't the full story. Which in this case, for the lawyer, it wasn't really about his neighbor, but it was actually about his enemy. The lawyer wasn't interested in widening his view of those he should love. He was interested in a justification of sorts in regards to his hatred of those he already despised. That's what Luke says right there. But desiring to justify himself, he, he says in a positive sense, well, who is my neighbor? But it's really about his enemy. So Jesus tells this story um, of this unarmed, unnamed man who gets jumped and robbed while on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho, a famous, famously violent road in the ancient world. And he was left there to die. He was basically left there, as Jesus said in the story, that he was half dead. I don't know what that means, you're alive or you're dead, but it, there you go. And as the story goes on, uh, if you're listening closely, you, you hear this rhythm happening that a priest came by and then a Levite came by and it sort of and the, the priest and the Levite, they're listed in that order, but they don't do anything to help the man. In fact, they just pass him by. And so there's this rhythm of people coming, but nobody is helping. And so the listeners of the story are hearing this, and they're counting the steps of the story. But the biggest thing is, 
it's, it's the way that Jesus is telling it. The priest came by, the Levite came by, but nobody, none of those two did anything for the man who had been robbed and left half dead. So the pressure in the story kind of builds because the next anticipated person to come along in the story for the listeners would have been, and I'll explain this in a second, it would have been in their minds an Israelite, an everyday commonplace, on-the-ground, run-of-the-mill Israelite because that's the way the hierarchy of the nation of Israel was explained in those days. It was always in that order, the priests, the Levites, and all of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and then the Israelite, the priests, the Levites, the Israelites. And so again, always in that order, so the listeners are anticipating that the hero of the story will be one of them, not some religious leader or a member of the Jewish ruling class, but just again, an everyday, on the ground, commonplace Israelite, that the everyday man was going to be the hero of the story. That's how they're hearing it. That's the rhythm of the story. That's the anticipation that's building. But Jesus throws this nice curveball in there and says, actually, the hero is going to be the Samaritan. Now, again, we don't have time to get into all of that. But the Samaritans and the Jews had a long and violent history. Hatred was the economy of the relationship. I mean, period. That's all it was. And yet Jesus injects into the story a scenario where the enemy, the Samaritan, becomes the neighbor. Uh, one where the enemy has changed. The text that Hadley read for us, like he felt pity. Another word for that is that he felt compassion over the unnamed man who had been jumped and robbed and left to die. And so the Samaritan becomes the hero because he's there's something in his heart that has changed and he helps the man. It's a scenario about the possibility of a changed heart where there was once hatred. I mean, this is sort of how the story unfolds. There's now compassion and mercy. Now, the lawyer asked who his neighbor was, which was really, again, about a justification of his own hatred. And by taking the cultural and historical reality that existed between uh, the Samaritans and the Jews at that time, again, which was hatred and violence, Jesus pulls the lawyer into the story deeper and almost allows him to change clothes and become the Samaritan and forces him to ask the question, what are the chances of you loving those you once hated? Because again, he knows the question beneath the question, okay, fine, Jesus, who is my neighbor? But G what Jesus knows is that this man harbors some hatred for somebody. And so Jesus uses the Samaritan as the story as the hero, and yet the lawyer's like, there's no way he's the hero. He hates us. We hate him. And then somehow Jesus pulls the lawyer into the clothing of the Samaritan and says, what are the chances of you loving those that you once hated? What are the possibilities of you feeling compassion towards those that you have historically despised? Like, how do you envision your love for others widening? Do you even envision that? Is the word neighbor expandable for you? That's, those are some of the questions that Jesus is putting back into the mind of the lawyer. And again, the story is a parable. It's told with all sorts of options for its meaning. And we find ourselves in the story, which helps us understand the meaning as it applies to us. You know, we listen. Sometimes we're the Samaritan. Sometimes we're the guy lying on the ground, half dead. Sometimes we're the priest, the Levite. Who knows? I mean, it's just different point. We hear it different ways at different times of our lives. And we could put all kinds of interrelated or pull all kinds of interrelated applications out of it. But what I want to do as we close this down 
um, I, I want us to just look at one of the most obvious and hopefully hopeful applications in the story, and it has to do with our love, not just for neighbor, but for those who we might consider an enemy. Jesus taught on this ethic of loving our enemies, and it's one of the most problematic rifts in all of his teaching anthology that I know of, and it may be the most avoided by all of us. But I want us to look at it just for a few minutes and to listen to what maybe Jesus is calling us to, and we'll try to do that in light of the Good Samaritan story as well. Let me just, we're just going to walk through a really famous teaching of Jesus on this. In Matthew chapter 5, it starts with this. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, and what? What does it say? Hate your enemy. Come on, let's just say hate. Ready? Hate. hate. Come on, you know you hate people. All right. Certain people. Maybe all people. Maybe you're one of those people. Uh, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now let me just do some technical things first. Uh, first of all, Jesus quotes on the first half of this thing that he's saying, he quotes an Old Testament text, Leviticus 19.18, which is the verse, love your neighbor as yourself. And what we learn in all of Leviticus 19 is that neighbor included everybody. I mean, it basically included everybody. It has this long-running list of people that might fit into that category, and there's no way to walk away from reading that without saying, well, that's pretty much everybody. And so the love command, the neighbor love command that's so deeply embedded in Israel's um, DNA, they understood that to mean essentially that's everybody. It's really wide. The love command is very, very wide. So Jesus quotes that in the first part, but then he says, but you've also heard that it was said to hate your enemy. Now the hate your enemy piece is nowhere in the Old Testament. It's nowhere in the Old Testament. In fact, nowhere in the Old Testament is it ever commanded that anybody hate anyone. The word hate does exist in the Old Testament. It exists in the New Testament too. But in biblical parlance, hate often means to ignore, to set aside, to avoid, demote, diminish of value, or even reject. In other words, you might see phrases like, the Lord loved this, but he rejected that, or he hated that. But it simply means that he's chosen this over that. It's not a personal hatred or of something or someone but a conscious decision to determine what is wise over unwise. To love this and to hate that simply meant that you chose what you think is the wiser option. That's all that means. And so when we read texts, and there's not very many that even say that in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, but when we run across those things, it has nothing to do with this hatred that leads to a kind of bitterness and perhaps even to the extreme where we might take somebody's life never means that. To love your neighbor as yourself was all-encompassing, and it included everybody, and hate was never what we think that it means. So when Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to hate your enemy, he's not quoting scripture, but something else. He may have been referencing some writings and some teachings and some theological discussions that were going on within the different Jewish communities of the day particularly some writings and teachings of a group of people known as the Essenes. I know I just lost you there, but hang with me. 
But these were people who lived for centuries before Jesus and even into his days. Some think that John the Baptist was one of those, but nobody really knows. But they, are re- they lived in and around the Qumran area where the Dead Sea is. And they are responsible for an enormous amount of literature that was produced prior to the days of Jesus, which we didn't even find until 1947. They're known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And once those were unearthed and we begin to read through those, we find a lot of things that were going on in the psyche of one of the several Jewish communities that existed at the time. And one of the documents, it's so strange, but one of the documents is called the Rule of the Community. And this is what it says, or at least a a piece of the text says this. He is to teach them to love all the children of light, each commensurate with his rightful place in the counsel of God, and to hate the children of darkness. There it is. Each commensurate with his guilt and the vengeance due him from God. There's many texts like this, but there's this line of thinking that it's okay to hate those who may be opposed to you. And in the centuries leading up to the days of Jesus, again, all sorts of theologies and literature was produced that and developed that said these sort of things and that kind of gave a green light to hate others and perhaps jesus was pointing at that i don't know and just saying you've heard that it was said that it's okay to hate your enemy and sort of pointing at that and saying that's not true but i also think that jesus is simply pointing at the words that roll around in our own minds anyway that there are always, for each of us, those that we love and those that we hate. And Jesus is simply referencing the writings of our own hearts and the script of our own culture. That's just the way it works. We love some people and we tend to hate other kinds of people. And so when Jesus says, you've heard it said, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, he's going to counter that. He's going to say that's not true. This is what he says next. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, just a technical piece here. For the first listeners hearing Jesus say these words, neighbor for them was anyone who was trustworthy and sympathetic to their struggle. Because at that time, Israel was an occupied territory, making Rome the enemy. So you got to think about it. I mean, Jesus is saying, I think you should love your enemies. It had to have gotten awkward because the Jews now see peripherally maybe some Romans standing around. Perhaps soldiers were standing there listening. And yet for the listeners, this idea of loving enemy, again, is not, it's not new. Loving your enemy has always been a part of the, uh, of the fabric of Israel's code. Just one example from The book of Exodus, chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. I just felt like this was the most relevant, and you'll see why around the sixth word. But if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, are you with me? This happened, right, yesterday, right? If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him, right? Not spray paint it, not, you know, whatever, and then give it back. But you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you, lying down under under its burden you shall refrain from leaving him with it and you shall rescue it with him like go find your enemy and go let's go get let's go get your donkey together isn't that just that's the most loving scene right let's go find 
Sorry, I thought that was going to be more hilarious than it was, but <laughs> you, get, you get the idea, right? I mean, from the beginning, God has always said, hey, listen, when things are happening in, in, in your life or to you or around you that involve your enemies, find ways in to serve, to love your enemy, to love your enemy through behavior and action. Now, since this is a tough and personal thing to hear from Jesus, like the whole love your enemies thing, like how do you even do that? It's really tough and uncomfortable. I thought that I would be transparent and just sort of ease us into this by listing all the people that I currently hate. <laughs> just to build some solidarity, all right? So, number one. Uh, no, I'm not going to. I don't have a list. These first service did that too. I think they really thought I had a list. But uh, it starts with this section. But uh, <laughs> I don't have a list. I mean, I have a list, but I don't write it down. But uh, so true story, the true story, uh, when I was in undergrad, we had this professor teaching us. It was like a ministry, like a practical ministries class. Um, and basically all that means is we're going to talk to you about some things that might happen practically in your church. So there was this one time where he was just telling these stories, and this is a true story. And again, we're 18, 19, 20 years old, just sitting here listening to this. And he says, he tells us the story of a church in Florida, a friend of his, it was a pastor of a church in Florida. And the church was toxic, and the, it was just, it was a terrible, it was a terrible, like, environment. And it was, the, the pastor was getting uh, beat up emotionally, and, uh, you know, hate, from hate mail to lit, a noose was hanging in his office at one point I remember that part of the story I was like wow and that's never happened here by the way and he said that it had gotten to the point where his friend he got up on a Sunday morning and he stood behind the pulpit and he, he put his paper down and he said the following people are divisive and they need to leave and then he just started reading the names I mean can you imagine if I did that today right <laughs> Can you imagine if I just said, you know, and Jeff Box is just, <laughs> he's got to go. You know? That's not the end of the story, though. I mean, we thought, wow, that guy, you know. But the, he's, the story basically ended with a fist fight in the parking lot. This is a really healthy church, by the way. Uh, a fist fight in the parking lot between the pastor, and it was the elders. It was the elders' names that he was reading, and so this sort of thing ended badly, right? So that has nothing to do with this text. Okay. But first of all, uh, let, let me be honest with you about these words, love your enemies, uh, that Jesus said. They're not only difficult to hear, but they sound really impractical and reasonable and certainly close to impossible. Now, Jesus is the only known person in antiquity to command anybody anywhere to love their enemies. So it's safe to assume that for his first listeners, this command was equally off-putting as it might be for us today. There's no way that they saw that coming. Secondly, let me admit that this sort of thing is very hard. And Jesus knew that this was hard. It would be hard for us today as well. He knew that this command separated him from the pack, because again, nobody had ever said this before that we know of. And if we lived it, it would separate us from the pack as well. But it is hard to imagine this taking place within our own relationships. E but I will say this, even if we assume that Jesus is off base here, 
even if we assume that Jesus went too far with this woman, like I get all the other stuff, but that's a little too far. I mean, even if, we, even if we get to the place where we say, okay, we can agree that Jesus, this sort of ethic is nothing less than beyond our reach. Even if we assume that that's okay to feel that way, and that he's gone too far, there's still one thing to consider. Because when I was writing this, I was like, I don't even know what to say beyond this point. So I just said this. I mean, it just sort of forced me into this place where it was like, okay, even if what Jesus said here is impractical and impossible, we should not pay attention to it. There's still one thing to consider that I think all of us could agree on, and it's simply this, that hate isn't working. That's not working anywhere. Would you agree with that? It fe- but here's the thing. Hate feels like it works. It kind of feels like it works. But it's not working. Pastor, theologian, writer, Nadia Bowles-Weber said this. I love this. She said, I have to look at how much I too need my enemies to stay my enemies. Like it's hard to know who I am if I don't know who I'm against. Sometimes hate feels like it works. Hate's really practical if I want to maintain power and control in the relationship. As long as I hate somebody, I have the upper hand, at least in my mind. Like, that's why it feels that way. As long as I hate someone, as long as I hold grudges, as long as I maintain bitterness towards someone, it feels like an advantage. As long as I hold on to feelings and justifications of hate towards someone else, I feel like I'm in the driver's seat. I think you would say you feel the same way. Because to let go of that feels like we're letting go of the control. And so when two people or two groups of people openly hate one another, then hatred only escalates in order to maintain the upper hand. Hatred is really tribal in a sense that it's fueled by a collective fear or misunderstanding of other people. Racism is essentially rooted in this sort of thing. Because if you step back from racism, it makes no sense. Except when we get inside of maybe the psyche of people who struggle with that. This fear that if I love and accept the other person that I don't understand or I don't quite understand, that they may gain momentum and place and control. I know that it sounds strange because, again, if you step back, it's like it doesn't really make sense that we would struggle with that, but we do. Um, Growing up here in the Deep South, I'm a native of this city, it was not uncommon to hear people, and for those of you who grew up in this area, you'll know what I'm saying, it was not uncommon to hear people say things or complain that their neighborhood or school or community was darkening with the influx of more and more African Americans. The phrase, uh, there goes the neighborhood, simply meant that a black family had moved in. And that meant that we were now neighbors, and that was too much, which was really problematic and difficult for lots of people. I remember going to school. I I remember actually going to these meetings about forced busing, going to an all-white school, but then hearing that it's not going to be all-white because we're going to bus people in and integrate the thing, right? That's what we're going to do. I remember going to those meetings. And I remember one year, and I could show you the yearbook, one year my high school was basically all white, and then, the vi- and then after the summer break, it was half and half. And a lot of people had a problem with that. Our f- 
friends were moving, moving to other counties. I'm not going to say which one, but moving to other counties. And it always, they always like couched it with like, well, you know, the schools are better. What does that mean? What did that mean? Did that mean that, that what does that mean? Tell me what that means. You got more resources? The parking's better? Like, what's better? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, well, it's not, it's not that. I mean, if you pushed it, that's what, that's what it would be. And it seems so strange. I mean, white flight was just a term to describe behavior of maintaining the upper hand through hatred and disgust. That's all it was. Really quiet in here, but that's okay. Uh, Scott McKnight, great theologian, writer, I love him. He says this, prejudicial love is only a way of loving ourselves. But to love enemies breaks through the self-barrier into divine space. Let that sink in. That's the invitation of what Jesus is saying when he says, I want you to try loving your enemies. You're good at hate, I'm good at hate, but let's try something different. Maybe love them. To enter into a divine space, to participate in loving the way that God loves, which is indiscriminately and without borders. Now, Jesus gives us some how-to on this. If you'll remember from the text earlier, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for your enemies. Now, it's not the only step in loving your enemies, but Jesus isn't giving a lecture. But it may be the first step, the first of many. And knowing that people might ask, well, how in the world do you love your enemies? He just gives one thing. He just says, just pray for those who persecute you. Loving and praying Four people go together with Jesus. To simply begin by praying for your enemies by name, and you know their names, you know how to spell their names, you know how they look, I mean, you know their names, right? Like if I just say, I'm going to give you five minutes, you write down all your enemies, you could do it. If you can't, I feel very terrible that I'm the only one that could do that. But you and I can do that. And all Jesus is saying here is, look, just try this. Try just praying for them. Like, when you and I bow our heads tonight, that we include in our dialogue with God words on behalf of our enemies. Why? Now, you can't pray that they die or that they lose their job or that their car crashes. You can't do that. But you actually pray for them. And most of the time we hate because we don't understand anyway. Most of the time we hate someone or we despise someone because we don't actually know what it's like to live in their shoes but to pray for them is to try our best to sort of put ourselves perhaps in their place that's what it means to love someone as yourself is to sort of see them with your face and it's very hard to hate someone just practically speaking while you're praying for them if you can props i mean i don't know how you do that but you you have a very good divided heart and with no conflict, but most of us, if we're actually praying for our enemies, it's hard to hate them while, at least while we're praying for them. And as in the story of the Good Samaritan, it's not so much that our prayers would change the other person, although that could very well happen, but that they may change us in the process that we might be changed 
that you and I might experience a renewal of heart and that we might see the truth that we too are someone else's enemy and that God's grace and mercy must flow from us into the lives of those that also harbor a hatred towards us. I mean, this is the whole process of praying for your enemies. It's how you love them, or it's at least the first step towards a love for them. And it begins by simply speaking on their behalf to God. And that's a strange thing to do. And that's probably just the one challenge this week is like, again, maybe just whoever that is in your life. And I'm not talking about ISIS. I'm talking about people you know. Okay, it's just easy. It's so easy to throw this out there like, well, I don't think I could ever love ISIS. Okay, that's fine. We're not on the ground with them, right? God's using somebody in that sphere to deal with that. But you've got people, and I've got people in my life, that we, we would say, that's an enemy. And I know we've, like, drained the meanings of the words love and hate because we love everything and hate everything. But I think you understand what I'm saying is that those people that we look at and it causes some kind of thing in us that just makes us angry. Pray for them. And I think it's interesting how it ends up changing you and me. As I said before, hatred is not, it's not working. And that's true. And by loving our enemy, we not only resist hatred, but we also, and this is the most important thing, we also point to the days to come like this is this is one of the biggest jobs of the church is to point to the days to come a time when God will come and make the world right again and that all that remains will be love I don't know which medieval mystic theologian said this but I know that it's in that era but the job of the church is to remember the future meaning we point to the thing that will come it's the point of the sabbath it's 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 the practice, the weekly practice of the days to come, the world to come. And when we love our enemies and we pray for them, we get to participate in that future immediately. And that you and I get to participate in heaven's fullness, even in the brokenness of the here and now. And imagine the good that might come from that. I mean, we get to do that too. We get to imagine what good might come from that. Now, I didn't really want to give a bunch of detailed next steps to you because I don't really know what those are. I mean, I could come up with stuff, but I think Jesus gives it to us. Loving our enemies begins with praying for them. And then let the Lord do what he does once we begin to do that. Again, you already know who your enemies are, and you know the pain and the struggle that has existed between you and them. Like, you already know that. And how you work out this command in your life is really between you and God and between you and the other person. And here's the brilliance of love your enemies. Here's, this is just the brilliance of this command from Jesus. The moment you begin to love them, they are no longer your what? Your enemy. Now, you may still be their enemy, but they're no longer your enemy. Let me say this. To close this down, let me say this. The word gospel uh, in the Greek is the word euangelion. Say the word euangelion. Euangelion. It's a good tattoo. You should get that. But the word gospel does not mean 
a book of the Bible that tells us about Jesus' life. That's called a biography. The word gospel means good news. That's what it means. It's not even a religious word. We co-opted the word from the Roman culture to describe the news of God's love and mercy and grace to the world. Euangelion just means news. It means good news. It's news. It's an announcement. And it's the announcement in the Christian sense that God has so loved the world that he gave his son on behalf of the world. That whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And I love that word, whoever, because that's everybody. And that's good news. Like, you see what I'm saying? Like, gospel is good news because it's for every, the news is for everybody. That God's grace and mercy and love and compassion is for everybody. And the, the title of today's message, which I'm saying now at the end, is that it's only good news if it's good news for everybody. And the church has a job in, it, you know, in its own vocation to be the bringers of good news to everybody. Let me close with this story. A couple of years ago, I was walking to the store and as I was passing one of the buildings on our street, there was a car parked outside the building. And it had this sticker on the back window that I could kind of see from the sidewalk. And I thought, does that really say what I think it said? And so I walked over to the car. I was, I was going to take a picture of it, but you'll see why in a moment that I didn't, because I was a little afraid to take a picture of it. Not because it said, don't take a picture of this. But basically, the sticker said this. It said, too many Christians, too few lions. I don't know if you own that sticker, but... And I just thought, that really does say what I think it said. I can't imagine, and you can't do this with other things. Like, somehow that's okay. I mean, I couldn't say, too many, insert the people group, too many lines. I'd get pulled over. But right there on the back of the car, about three feet from the coexist sticker, which I thought was ironic. <laughs> it's like, do you people see yourselves? But too many Christians, too few lions. If you're unfamiliar with church history, there were many martyrs at the strength of a lion. And I thought two things when uh, I saw that sticker. One, the first thing I thought was the amount of demographic and geographic legwork that had to go in to get the lion to Christian ratio in today's world must have been a lot of work. Like I thought, wow, they know the math. But secondly, the thing that I thought was, and it's always the case, because again, I mean, just doing what I do and have done it for so long, this is almost always the case. I read that sticker. I don't know who the person was that owned the car. I don't know if it's a girl or a guy. I don't know how old they are. But what I did know was that something happened. Something happened where the good news became bad news. Maybe this person grew up in a family with this overbearing, oppressive Christian set of parents. And it wasn't good news, it was terrible news. It was based on fear and trepidation. Or they grew up in a church where there was not, it was good news for some people, but not for all people, and they wondered if they fit into the some people. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, it's always something that happens. I mean, I watch Bill Maher, and I'm like, something happened. Who's that angry about faith systems? I mean, something happened. 
My guess is, again, just from experience, is that the good news became bad news or that the good news was only held for certain people and it was not good news for everybody. And I just kind of like to imagine because I'm this kind of person and I know it's impractical, but what happens when a church like ours, just a small two-service, 15 small groups, couple singles gigs a year, like what happens if we take this seriously like what happens if everybody in this room this week says i'm going to pray for my enemies i don't know what happens because i'm guessing that's never happened but what happens if we do that what will god birth in us what happens in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and in our families like those are questions that always rattle in my mind like if we if we took this seriously Love your enemies. I don't know if I can do that. Pray for them. I can do that. With clenched teeth, I can do that. And maybe we get to see not just a glimpse of heaven, but maybe we get to see God work in ways that we haven't seen him work before. Some of you may be sitting on a dead faith. Man, I'm in church every week, but it just doesn't feel like anything. Maybe try this and see. Maybe just throw some problems into the system. Throw some tension into your faith. Throw some, some problematic Jesus teaching crazy stuff in there, like pray for your enemies. Just see what happens. You know, it's boring. I don't sing the songs. The communion's boring. You're boring, Derek. I mean, like, that's fine. That's great. I get it. Do that and then come back to me in a week and go, it's not boring anymore. I'm unsettled. I can't sleep. I'm troubled. Okay, now we're talking. I need, I need to learn more. I need to grow more. I need more of God. Because the moment you put yourself in divine space, which is an indiscriminate love for all people, it gets real. And I think that's what Jesus is inviting us to do. And the story of the Good Samaritan is just another picture of that, that sometimes our enemies become our neighbors, and sometimes we're the enemy and we need to become the neighbor. Either way, it's crazy stuff. But God works in those environments. Amen? That is the end of the Good Samaritan series. Uh, I was going to try to pull it out five weeks, but again, I got nothing left. Um, but I did want to leave it with that. And Jesus ends that whole teaching with go and do likewise. And I think that's all I'm saying is let's all go and do uh, what we've heard this week. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday, and then Easter after that. Easter's on the Sunday again this year. I don't know if you knew that, but... Uh, I'm, I'm going to run that joke until y'all laugh, but it might take 10 more years, but uh, basically two more Sundays, but Palm Sunday's next week, just the traditional uh, Sunday for us, we'll do the Palm Sunday text, and, um, and I'll just teach through that, and then Easter will be the, the very next weekend, so really excited about the next two weeks, and then uh, hopefully you'll, uh, you'll be there as well, so I'm going to pray for you, so if you'll stand, and then we'll close together in the Lord's Prayer, which will be on the screen. Uh, for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, uh, these last four weeks that we've had together just to move through this well-known story, this parable, one of these great teachings that you've given us to wrestle with. And again, sometimes we are different characters in the story, and um, I assume in the room today that all of them are represented. Some people feel half dead on the roadside, just needing help. Some people feel as though they don't have time to help others. Some feel like the enemy that's changing. Um, 
So whatever the case may be, we just ask that you continue to move us uh, into the place where loving all people for us is just something that is, is super exciting. And that we become experts at that, which is at the center of your law, that we love our neighbors as ourselves. God, thank you for um, your son who is the expression that, that when, when Christ came, that he is the living, breathing embodiment of how much you love the world. And that we come here each week and remember that. And we take the bread and the juice and the communion. We remember the greatest display of his love, that he died for us. And as Paul said in Romans, that even, even though, even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that even while we were enemies of you, that you continued to love us. And so help us to, to glimpse that and to see that in our own relationships. Thank you so much for in all the ways that you teach us together as a community. And we close together with the prayer that you've given your community to pray, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next Sunday.